Welcome to Flopography, where we revisit old pop albums that are known by many, not because of their critical or commercial success, but because of their lack thereof. These albums received the designation of flop. But did we give them a fair shake? Welcome to Season 3, Episode 4 of Flopography. Mike and Steve here. It's a Friday night at the time of the recording, so that's not the only reason we're decked out in our disco vibes here. Uh, It's also because of the album we're reviewing, but it's a Friday night. I'm still uh, in the midst of dry January. A little bit jealous of of Mike enjoying his wine over there. Mike, how's how's the, how's the wine during your semi dry January? Um, the wine is great. You appreciate it more when you're being semi dry and uh, moderation January, whatever. But honestly, this is um, really good. It's Messy Mama by Snooky. Have you had it yet? It's really good. <laughs> no, but that that is uh, hilarious because I told you about my dream about Snooky and her husband the other night. Oh, yes. That, that yeah. feels like fate. I that about just that. Are drinking her wine because it was so such a random dream, but it was so vivid that I had to text you about it. Cause that's too funny. Yeah. I, I uh, got like five bottles for Christmas because I really have been obsessed with her for some reason, but um, I um, got that. I was going to get, champagne instead because this is all about the artist today right so exactly get in the mood steve get in the mood so um mike can you tell tell the listeners and watchers where you picked up that jacket it's (laughs) a glitter jacket and it's popping on the screen yeah and i bet you wear that out on the clubs on saturday night all the time no um i got i first of all i'm a sucker for sequin and i got this jacket um, from Amazon, of course, and I wore it for my goodbye condo party earlier this year. So I'm like, you know what? Trying to adjust for the part. Here we go. I'm going to get it out of the closet. I love it. And yeah. I'm trying to wear something a little bit more, you know, in the era of when the album was supposedly set. 2001? So to... Released? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Not when it was released. I got this actually in a vintage store in LA and, um, Echo Park, Jenny loves this like vintage store. And so I went with her and picked up a few things. And so now I have a reason to wear it. There we uh, go. Here we so are. Let's switch it up a little bit. Since this is your pick, do you want to announce to sure. everyone the album that we will be reviewing today? So Steve, shout out to a fan, actually a couple of you. You have requested this specific album. And when we saw it, we're like, um, duh, why would we not? It is Glitter by Mariah Carey. And I want to add a caveat to that, Steve. It's her eighth studio album, but it's also a soundtrack to the movie of the same name released in 2001. Steve, tell us more. Yeah, so the uh, album was released, which shocked me, on September 11th, 2001, which... We goes without saying the day the Twin Towers were hit and the 9-11 attacks on the U.S. So it was released a bit earlier in Japan, but obviously a fateful day. We'll get into how that may have affected the, the release and the performance. The music that was popular at the time, this was going back to 2001. So it was totally, it, it was kind of refreshing to look at the 
top billboard charts from that year comparatively to the past few albums that we've reviewed that have been more recent. Lifehouse actually had the biggest hit of the year with Hanging by a Moment. Um, so alternative rock was kind of having its you know moment. R&B was successful. Alicia Keys, Janet Jackson, Eve, Destiny's Child, J-Lo, all in the top 10 to top 15 songs of the year, which really was interesting then diving into this album and the features and the direction of the album probably was informed by some of that popularity. So before I get into Mariah Carey's stage of her career, Mike, what's your perspective on Mariah as an artist? I want to know you know, your position on her. So growing up, I think as early as maybe fourth grade, my mom was a fan of Mariah. Um, and I think I became even more of a fan of Mariah after hearing her play her music. And no joke, like Steve, I was obsessed with her. Like I would literally go to bed every single night to her greatest hits album. No joke. Like with my boom box. Yeah. How and- old were you at the time? Um, fourth or fifth grade. I am, it was right around the time, right before her next studio album, Charm Bracelet. And I would listen to her nonstop. I was obsessed with her songs, her, her lyrics, her musicality, her voice, everything. Fun fact, in I think it was 2005 on her Charm Bracelet World Tour, I went with my dad. And he after was like, hey, I know where to wait for the artist to come out. And it was summer, so thank goodness I had no school the next day. And um, he brought me outside the United Center in Chicago, and we waited for Mariah. And she came out uh, finally after hours of waiting in her limo, uh, stretch limo. And she rolled down the window with her blinged out 2000 cell phone. And she waved, she's like, hi, to me and a couple of people and my dad waiting there. I freaked out. I literally, and then she, Pulled it back up and the limo went and I literally chased her down right outside the United Center, her limo, no joke, for a little bit and then stopped. But that's was my obsession with Mariah. I'm a, I'm a casual fan now, but not as obsessed, but definitely was then. That seems to reflect her stereotype as a bit of a diva. That's hilarious. I did not realize you were so deeply entrenched in the Mariah fandom. Oh, yeah. What do oh, they yeah. call themselves? Like the lambs? Can you explain that to me? I don't even know the origins of it, to be honest, because that was like before social media time, obviously. So I wasn't like that hooked up. Into so you that wouldn't goal. consider yourself a, is it a Lamb Lee or a Lamb? I think it's a Lamb, but Lamb Lee is like the, the, the collective. I don't consider myself of that, to be honest. I would say I dropped off from like a huge fan of her after like 2013. I feel like her music started to go downhill a little bit, but um, I still appreciate Mariah. So I think Mariah's pretty fascinating, especially from like a marketing and strategy perspective. Her catchy pop hits of the 90s, I enjoyed. If you look back at like fantasy, the butterfly era, I remember a bit. But she's created this like entire brand around Christmas. I almost wore a Santa hat because I was like, that's like reflective (laughs) of Mariah, who's like queen of Christmas. I think she tried to get that trademarked, but was unable to. And her ability to market herself is really undeniable. That diva personality we've talked about, I think it's evolved a bit in the perception of her in the general public. I think it was not such a strong perception. And I think she's kind of changed the tide a little bit by embracing the diva personality. And that's become a little bit more likable. One of the things, Mike, and you probably know this story, but I'm not sure all of our listeners do, that really made me 
interested in, in her origins, as well as reflects the fact that she is good at marketing herself, is this like Hollywood lore story about how she attended this CBS record executives gala. And this is how she got her start. She brought her demo tape and put it in the pocket of the head of Columbia Records, which was Tommy Matola, who she eventually married. And on his way home, he played it in the car and realized he was listening to this unique talent. And he turned around immediately. He asked the driver to turn around with no contact details in the demo. He needed to like understand how to get a hold of Mariah. And he went back to the party. She had left. And eventually he was connected with her by somebody at the party. But it was really interesting to me. Like that doesn't really happen other than in the movies. I know we're talking about glitter reflective of the movies, but I thought that's such an interesting way that she got her start. I love it. This was Mariah's eighth studio album. It is considered a soundtrack. And I think that is interesting because you don't normally see soundtracks considered as a studio album, but this is definitely considered an eighth studio album. She was 32 at the time. And this was the follow-up to her 1999 album, Rainbow. It mixes dance, pop, funk, hip-hop, and R&B. And it was really a complete musical departure from any previous release. Focused on creating the 1980s post-disco era to accompany the film, which was set in 1983. So I got the disco vibe a little bit too early for, for this album but in the movie. But I haven't seen Glitter the movie. Have you? I was actually going to ask you if you did because I debated watching it last night. I looked everywhere. It's not on like Apple TV. You can't rent it from Apple TV, which is really weird. But then I found it on YouTube for free. Like someone had illegally uploaded it and I was going to watch it. But like this week has been a little crazy at work. So I am debating watching it right after the show. But to be honest, Steve, I'm kind of glad we didn't because we're looking at the music as a body of work and not as a movie soundtrack. And we should follow up maybe after we watch the movie to see if our reaction has changed. That's a good idea. But I'm with you. I haven't seen it. And I I was considering watching it this weekend. Although I was like, maybe I just wait till dry January is over because I feel like I'd want to have like a drink during that. It's not like something I want to seriously see as like an academic piece because we'll wow. talk about the reviews and ratings of the movie, which were even worse than the album. Well, we're going to need to follow up on a future episode this season with a quick anecdote on that, Steve. Then, so commitment made to the listeners now. Never too far away. So, due to the pressure of a breakup, she was she just broke up with this Latin singer, Luis Miguel. She was with a new record label. Uh, she had left Columbia for Virgin. Admits uh, the divorce with Tommy Matola, who was the head of Columbia Records that I mentioned earlier. She began this nervous breakdown, which was associated with this era. She began posting a series of disturbing messages on her official website and displayed this erratic behavior while on several promotional outings, uh, one that I'll talk about a little bit later. All right, Mike, it's time for the numbers on Glitter, the soundtrack and eighth studio album of Mariah Carey. So Glitter had a number seven debut with 116,000 units. It was her least uh, successful commercial album to date. Rainbow at a number two debut had 323,000 units sold and Butterfly debuted at number one with 235K. So Rainbow had almost three times 
the sales of glitter. The singles, this is something Mariah Carey, I believe she has 19 Billboard number ones. I think she's the top female. She has uh, an incredible run in the 90s. Lover Boy was the first single. It went to number two, but it only lasted 14 weeks. It was her first lead single not to hit number one. I mean, that's an impressive feat that she had before Glitter. But Lover Boy quickly descended off the Hot 100 after its debut was really aided by sales pricing. So it was a little bit of a gimmick. I'm not sure it was like a true hit. She also uh, released a remix of Lover as well. She had two other singles, Never Too Far and Don't Stop, neither which charted on the main Billboard Hot 100 chart. Those numbers that you mentioned, Steve, the 100,000, like that's really low for the time period where CD, physical CDs were driving all sales. Like back then, like number one, if you were number one, you were getting like hundreds of thousands of album units in those sales. So like that's a really low number, even for the time itself more so. It's very true. And critically, Glitter, I was surprised because the album had a 59 out of 100 on Metacritic. Uh, and that was the first album that was truly reviewed on, and aggregated on Metacritic. So when I looked back at Rainbow and Butterfly, Rainbow had mixed to positive reviews. Rolling Stone gave it a three out of five. Butterfly had critical acclaim with Pitchfork ranking it amongst the best 150 albums of the 90s. So a very successful album. Glitter was also handicapped by its movie, which received a 14 out of 100 on Metacritic uh, and a 6% critic score on Rotten Tomatoes. Six, Mike. Crazy. It did receive a 48% audience score and has become kind of a cult classic. This album, I think this season, is going to be the one with the probably lowest reviews and on every front, Steve. Would you agree so far? Yeah, when when I was looking through the numbers and looking just through the background and the uh, the associated era, this this was like your traditional full-fledged flop. The floppiest of the flops. Mariah's nervous breakdown, I think really even made it more of a spectacle which we can get more into that because I think the times have changed around mental health. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if that plays a factor in how people approach it. So with that, Mike, let's get into the analysis of Glitter by Mariah Carey. So I'm going to go first. I like to switch it up. I know we did it with positions. I'm going to switch it up with with, uh, Mariah Carey as well. Describe your initial reaction in one word. Mine is hip hop. And I was surprised by that influence on the record i did not realize i came in pretty blindly to glitter i didn't even realize the mo- what the movie was really about but it felt like a complete transition from her pop music to hip-hop uh, the album featured ja rule Ludacris, buster rhymes and between if we don't stop and a remix of lover boy she included seven guest rappers on three songs so i i just felt like it was a little bloated with features And that doesn't really happen much on a soundtrack album. The songs really felt disconnected with some songs having this R&B feel and others having a pop disco feel. There was remakes on the album and then you had new music. It was just like kind of messy. 
but if I had to choose one word to describe my initial reaction was, was hip hop. And that, that kind of surprised me, even though that's a direction I think Mariah was trying to, to shift into and Columbia was holding her back a little bit. Mm-hmm. And this was her first record on Virgin, but Mike, you're a Mariah fan. What was your reaction to the album? So full disclosure, I had not listened to the full thing from start to finish until the preparation for this episode. Um, simply because it, every time I try to listen to it, the word that came to mind a little bit similar to what you said is disjointed. And because there's ballads, there's hip hop collaborations, there's that disco funk in there and it's not consistent. It's all over the place. And to your point about, you know, hip um, hip hop or R&B, it's interesting because she started to show signs of that in her collaborations and remix of, I think it was um, Fantasy, and then in her Rainbow album, Heartbreaker, which is a complete bop. um, I really like that song. Such a good song. I love that album. Um, With Jay-Z, though, like she was starting to straddle between the worlds of pop and the world of hip hop. And this album is definitely dab smack in the middle of that, right? Because you have Mariah, who's a pop star, I would say a la Whitney, who has pop bangers, but also really strong ballads. And then now she's starting to teeter in this, in this territory. So she's kind of straddling all of that, which is why it comes with that disjointed feel. Tell me, baby, so disjointed would be your yes. one word to describe your initial reaction. Absolutely. What was your low moment of the era? And I'm I'm curious because I think we might have a similar one, but the, I'll let you go first. So is it the I don't TMZ? Steal your is what? It the, is it the TMZ incident? No, what's the T? I don't even know the TMZ incident. What? Oh my God, TMZ. Uh, TLC. No, oh my God. TRL. Yeah, TRL. Why am I messing yes. up? I watched TRL religiously, like back then. Like I, I literally would come home from school and put TRL on. I remember what, her incident was, which, you know, see if it was, you remember, you may recall, but her coming out with literally completely surprising Carson Daly with ice cream. It was just acting completely weird and like dressed with a men's shirt on. Like it was super odd. And to me, like that was very representative of that era and the chaos that she was going through internally. First of all, I did not know that the situation existed really? until I read a couple of reviews. One was a retrospective review and it had the YouTube video and I watched it last night. And so I'll take you through it exactly, Mike, because I wrote down a couple of notes. Like you said, she shows up to TRL unannounced. Did they really not know? Like Carson Daly had no idea. She just showed up and they let it. Like I assume they, she'd have to go through security and all that. Well, I'm sure producers know but i'm sure producers knew she was loopy and uh was gonna give them a nice little surprise in the show and a viral tv moment i guess she has this lover boy t-shirt she takes it off and she has like really short shorts underneath that she keeps like telling the camera person don't get this bad angle because these are super skimpy then she says she needs therapy and carson is her therapist she gives ice cream to the crowd. And then finally she gives Carson a picture and a letter from her mom. And in the letter, it asks watchers to vote for Mariah Carey's lover boy video. It felt like she was grasping at straws because she knew that this was not the type of era that she's previously had. Yeah. And 
it's sad because I think Lover Boy is actually a really strong track. And it, I didn't really start getting into it until about three years ago when, you know, it rotated my Spotify list and all of a sudden I got really into it. And I remember liking it back then, but the video was like so sexy that like, I don't think I watched it as much as a kid, but the song to me is a bop. I don't know. What are your thoughts on the single? I liked the chorus. I felt the remix, which I think is the one that was kind of like sent to radios. The rapping was the lyrics were a bit cheesy and that was distracting to me. What song should have been a single? Well, yes, easily Last Night the DJ Saved My Life, which I know is a cover, but it's probably the song that got me bopping the most. And we know Mariah's goal is to have like an 80s like dance type record and go different. This really embodied that, in my opinion. And like the song is just fun. And let's be honest, Buster Rhymes can do no wrong when he's featured in a song either. So that one probably would have really went up the airwaves. But we know Mariah's ego is so big, she would never release a cover as a single. I loved the duet between Mariah and Buster Rhymes that, baby, if you give it to me, I'll give it to you. Yeah, that's that was a great song. Did I? I told you, and I might have told our listeners that. My first concert my parents took me to was a P. Diddy concert and Buster Rhymes mooned the audience in the concert and we had to leave because my parents thought it was inappropriate. (laughs) Oh my, who mooned? Wait, who mooned? Buster Rhymes pulled his pants down and mooned the audience. That's hilarious. I don't think my parents really vetted the artists that we were going to see. My song that I chose was also a remake. It was Didn't Mean to Turn You On. I thought that was a great rendition. She did it flawlessly. And given today's market where like old hits and remakes are being played on pop radio, I think this would be the best choice. There weren't many viable options. And the one that I liked the most, if we didn't feel like Mariah songs, uh, they felt like the feature was the lead. And you know, what's interesting about If We, so Ja Rule's in that one. And in the early 2000s, I was also a very big fan of Ja Rule's features or songs with female artists. But that one just seemed off like lazy and really stuck out like a sore thumb in the entire album, in my opinion. Do you know the history of that of that song too? I read, and I was going to ask you about this. I read something about the fact that like J-Lo and Ja Rule had the rights the production or something and i was curious for your clarification this is jumping ahead steve but like i'm gonna tell you the kind of part of also what went wrong in this this is one of the many things uh but tommy matola major executive obviously married to mariah and they, they had divorced at this point tommy had his hands on the project still and was really well connected so he was working with j-lo he wanted J-Lo to have an R&B crossover, almost like Mariah was trying to get as well. And because of that, and his pissed off nature at Mariah, he, behind the scenes, made some attempts to get the album off the track. So one of them being this song, If We With Ja Rule, he heard that he was doing that. He called the same producer, Urgotti, and said, hey, 
I want a very similar song, but with J Lo and Ja Rule. And everybody's like, um, okay, like let, let, let's do something. And that's I'm Real Remix with Ja Rule. The other way that Tommy Matola kind of thwarted Mariah's plans is with Loverboy, <clears throat> they used a sample originally called Firecracker. And you can hear it actually, she released it a couple years ago, finally, officially. And he stole that sample ahead of time before she can actually use it and put it on JLo's original version of I'm Real. So like two attempts that he swiped at Mariah and gave JLo the upper hand in her career, which is why you see the infamous, iconic, like, I don't know her, Mariah between J-Lo, because there's all this tension and bad blood, which, let's be honest, the source of it is Tommy Matola. J-Lo was just trying to be a big pop star and took the direction. Yeah, you guys can all see my dog. He yeah. likes to be a part of the podcast. There we go. So... What aged the best with this album? That's a good question on this one specifically. The disco pop that, I don't know if it's age the best, but when we list, we just listened to the also positions, right? What has that funky soul in it as well. You know, Dua Lipa, disco pop, Kylie Minogue, disco pop. Like that's been a big thing. And that trend hasn't gone away. And to be honest, when I listen to this album and no, keep remembering it's 2001, it still sounds kind of sonically relevant on those tracks, not the not the ballads, not the um, you know hip hop collaborations, but that one does still sound sonically relevant. So I think that's eight to the best in this record. Yeah, mine's in that same space actually. I think it's like the ambition and the also the legacy of the album. And let me get to that in a minute. First, like the ambition pushing the boundaries of pop radio. It had that Studio Fifty Four era. Uh, vibe with the synth flutes and sultry vocals. Uh, She had that collaboration with Rick James, right? Look at Nicki Minaj just featured Rick James's track on a 2022 single. So I think that just shows her relevance even today. Also, Glitter has since amassed this like cult following. Mm -hmm. Mariah's fan base drove the soundtrack to number one on iTunes um, album chart in recent years. So it's being reconsidered by some groups. I think that legacy of like the fact that she is such a big star, her fans can, which is crazy, can now kind of change the narrative a little bit. Even if maybe some of them don't love glitter, I think they can kind of change the narrative that it's a cult classic and not necessarily a flop. What didn't age well? And I'm going to go first because we like to switch it up a little bit. To me, what didn't age well is the lyrics, especially some of the guest features. I talked about how Loverboy felt a little bit cheesy. Let me read you this lyric from Loverboy. Are you ready? Yeah. You're so sweet. You taste like all types of candy from Starburst to jelly beans, banana split my Dairy Queen, Butterfinger my Tangerines. I love it. <laughs> it's fun and flirty. It's different. It's a good track. What uh, didn't age well for you from the album? Hands down, and this is hindsight is 2023, um, is just the demonization of her and what she was going through at that time. As you mentioned, she's going through struggles and mental health. And, um, you know, posting weird stuff on her website, coming on weird promo appearances. 
And, you know, as people don't know, at the kind of peak of this era, it was revealed that she um, was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. That is definitely challenging, right? For an artist of her, her star power. And this is probably like one of the first times that we've seen an artist of that magnitude, you know, really set up for failure from the general public because of mental health struggles. And that has not aged well because that's kind of what muddies up this entire era, you know, a la Britney and, and Blackout. I don't think that would happen today. I think people would have more empathy for what she went through. Um, what I will say on the flip side of that, Steve, is that I have I like from a PR perspective, since that is my profession, um, that she owned it. You know, she was very upfront about the struggles that she went through in, in her next era charm bracelet and took it head on instead of like kind of scurrying away from it like Britney has with her mental health struggles. Yeah, in rewatching that TRL clip, it was kind of a cry for help. I mean, she was talking about therapy. She's like, was even admitting that she was, you know, having a really tough time. Her mom said she'd be, been working too much. Like, I, I do think that that even seeing that clip, people would have reacted differently in 2023. So I, I agree with you that I think that didn't age uh, well. So it's time to talk about our rationale for what went wrong. And you've hinted at some of this. My rationale for what went wrong, the association, obviously, and poor critical reaction of the movie, I think was was detrimental to the album. Also, the timing. Let's We haven't really talked much about that, but it was released on September 11th. So the movie had scathing reviews, right, with a 6% on Rotten Tomatoes. It only drew 2 0.4 million in its opening. It was outgrossed by 10 holdover movies. Also, post 9-11 Americans weren't going to the movies, especially a movie that seemed like celebrity fluff. And I think that, you know, the tone of the movie wasn't what Americans were looking for at the time. So Mike, what was your rationale? You've told us a little bit, but kind of dive a little bit deeper of what went wrong. Well, Steve, you've covered some of that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tack on because I agree with everything you said. Bringing it back to the whole J-Lo swiping, right? Again, not J-Lo. It's Tommy Mottola. He was the mastermind behind all this. But J-Lo was very successful at this time at tra transitioning her career from pop to R&B and, and hip-hop. And that definitely did not help Mariah's case at this time period. J-Lo was on fire. I also think from what maybe you didn't touch upon is that the album tried to be way too many things, even though, you know, positioned as an eighties, you know, fun record in honor of the movie, she threw in Mariah ballads, right? I mean, what's a Mariah album without those ballads? She threw in those hip hop grabs. And I think that it was a mixed bag of music that, did not lend itself to a cohesive perspective that would then have more um, appeal to the general public. So there is a, probably a sense that some of that music was released at the wrong time. And, and not just because of 9-11, but because, again, disco pop is now a bit more of a thing. And as well as the Ja Rule um, songs were really banging from 2002, 2003 even, right? So a hold off on an album or a resurgence of it probably would have been a really good strategy to bring more attention to it. So 
and not even to mention the mental health issues that she was going through. So, I mean, there is just so much recipe here, ingredients to make this a recipe for a flop. All right, Mike, it's time to read our fan tweets. So um, I'm going to pull those up and we're going to go through them and get your reaction. Let's not DJs in my life. Now this sounds like in my head. So these are actually two tweets from Lyron D. Glitter the movie objectively isn't a good movie, though it earns cult status for its camp. But the soundtrack is gold, a concept album that's an homage to 80s disco with some fantastic songwriting and singing, quite literally ahead of its time, given how popular it became due to that justice for glitter movement is so much more than that. Mariah's fans refuse to let a misogynistic narrative that almost destroyed her life and career define that era. The scrutiny she received and the gloat with which it was delivered were never just. The, again, with the disco pop ahead of its time, but like, Steve, I guess, well, the jury's out on how the movie supported that album, right? We're going to have to circle back on that one. But I mean, but let's be honest too. It wasn't a cohesive album. So there, I don't, I have mixed feelings about that tweet. <laughs> All right. The next tweet is from Tyler. It says, agree with Mariah. And this was a reaction to uh, name a singer or band that immediately makes you change the station. So this person said, agree with Mariah. She's a lip syncer. I immediately changed the Christmas music back to my rock station. So I don't have to hear. She's still blaming nine 11 for her movie glitter being a failure. Talk about soulless about the 3000 people that died on that horrible day in America. I have seen the controversy around like her comments about nine 11, although I haven't seen any recent ones um, being impacting that album. So that's, that's a little low to that entire tweet. (laughs) Uh, The final is from Brian. It says, thinking of how Mariah really said, I love my lambs and I'm going to do this for them and bought the whole glitter soundtrack with her own money and released it for us just for y'all to not appreciate this masterpiece now that it's out. Hashtag justice for glitter. So I guess it wasn't on uh, streaming platforms as of 2020 and she released it by buying her music back. Did you did you know this? Yeah, because that's why I think I mentioned I until three years ago, I didn't really start listening to Loverboy because you had to buy the album. Um, so see, this is another layer to this entire saga. People don't know, because of the low performance for, of the album, she she had literally right before this signed a really like one in a lifetime once in a lifetime album deal for with Virgin Records. And Virgin actually dropped her with this one album release because it failed so bad and obviously all the controversy around it with her mental health that they dropped her on it. So she, you know, obviously was in a totally different contract for that one album. And um, that's when the justice movement started because, you know, there was this resurgence around her and she did buy it, but that is a, a really interesting layer to the story. So did they like buy her out of the contract or something? And then did yeah. she, what, do you know what label she went to after? Yeah, she went to, I think, Island Def Jam. That's where she released Charm Bracelet. And then her iconic um, Emancipation of Mimi, which came out shortly after that one. That, I was actually just in a forum today that was talking about, as I was researching, that that album was like named one of the best comeback albums like ever. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is. And honestly, Steve, people also have requested Charm Bracelet as an album for review. So maybe in a future season, but that, that, kind of flopped too. 
All right. It's time for the 2023 review, Mike. Mariah Carey's Glitter. We're talking about the soundtrack, flop or not, and why? Flop. Um, You can't deny this one. And if anyone come at me, but like, it's a flop from the commercial sense. We know this, but like, even from a musical sense, it's not a cohesive album. And Steve, I'm really of the mindset coming back to the Justice Four movement. This one, there is really strong um, opinions about Bionic that really was Justice Four. Blackout was a Justice Four, but Mariah, I'm sorry, but this one was just not it. It was not a cohesive album. It's, you know, just poor lyrics and sometimes and choppy. And so it, it's an undeniable flop. And I hope you agree, Steve. Flop. Yeah, I agree. Yes. <laughs> did you um, loathe listening to this album? Did I what? Did you loathe listening to this album? It was a little difficult. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. A couple of things that I just want to point out of why I think it's a flop, but also why I think it's the evaluation criteria is a little bit unfair. I think it's unfair to be evaluated as like a Mariah Carey studio album. It's a soundtrack album. So we have to watch the movie to see if it really fits the vibe of the movie, right? Yeah. Look look at this year's soundtrack songs, okay? Rihanna's big comeback, Lift Me Up, was pretty underwhelming. Um, <sighs> and I think that, you know, you could consider Lift Me Up a flop. It did uh, reach number two in its first week, but that's just because it was benefiting from her comeback but it you know it potentially could be nominated and win an oscar like it's because it was made in context of the movie look at the weekend's avatar theme song have you even heard it mike like uh, i actually did yeah lady gaga's hold my hand all of those songs those are big artists they charted on the hot 100 but it it doesn't have the same impact as a studio album so I do think it's a little bit unfair to judge. That said, this album is a mess. It's a scattershot of remakes, multiple genres, too many features. I mean, Mariah really thought, she really, really thought this was her bodyguard, a star is born moment. And I think the fact that it's like, has so much of the entertainment conglomerates between film, music, all of these moments, it to me is a quintessential flop. I think Mariah Carey is immensely talented. I'm excited to see what she does next. I think she should drop the Christmas thing a little bit. And yeah. Focus, focus a bit on like the rest of her career because I think all I want is for Christmas is always going to be there. But I think that it's kind of reached its no. level of saturation. Yeah. I mean, you can do a Peloton commercial and continue to hang your hat on it and like expect it to be fresh. Right. Although this album's a flop, Steve, like you have to commend Mariah for her resilience. And again, to be able to come from that. And I don't know if a lot of people know about the mental health struggles that she went through at that time. And cause she's been so strong after and like, again, emancipation of Mimi, one of the biggest albums like of all time she was able to come back from this and that that's a pretty good story to tell. And to that point, even in film, I think she was in precious and that yeah, received, yeah. she received some good critical acclaim there. Yeah. So yeah, to your that. point, she, she got help. She figured it out. All right, Mike, uh, that does it for episode uh, four of season three. 
this was Mariah Carey's Glitter. We want to hear your thoughts on glitter, so please share them. Do you believe that there should be justice for glitter? And Mike's going to show you how. Yeah, at Flopography Podcast. Tweet us, send us a DM, whatever you want. Comment on our stuff. We want to hear from you. Um, if you want to send an audio note, Flopography Podcast at gmail.com. Send us your thoughts, and we will include you in an episode. Anchor.fm slash Flopography Podcast to find out how to listen to us on any, every single platform, including YouTube. And if you are on YouTube, like, comment, and subscribe to help have others find this podcast too. So thank you again, and uh, onward, Steve. I know. Now I got to take off my disco shirt and put on my sweats and relax. I'm sleeping with my, my sequin glitter. I'm so lame. It's a Friday night. Yeah. All right, Mike. Have a good one. See you guys.